Thank you, choir, and Miss Jeannie, for that beautiful song. I love that song and how it paints a beautiful picture of the life of Christ and his death and how that is symbolized in the rose among the thorns. And it's just a wonderful song. Well, as we begin today, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning knowing that you're good and that your mercies endure forever. Lord, we know that you're good to us because you have saved us by grace. It's not based on anything that we've done or any merit that we bring to you that we are saved, but by your mercy and your grace alone. And we uh, come to this passage today uh, seeking your grace and your mercy. Lord, this is a very difficult passage. It's a passage that will inevitably hit us hard if we're reading it right and seeking to understand it. Lord, I pray for help for myself that I might preach it well and that your people might understand it, and that we might grow from it. I pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. We're going to be in Romans chapter 9 today, and we're going to be in all of Romans chapter 9 today. So I want to say, first of all, uh, it's days like today where I wish we had seatbelts in our pews so that we could just all strap in, because this you're going to need to hold on to something. This is going to be uh, something different from what you might be familiar with in our even in our study of the book of Romans so far uh, and it's going to be difficult uh, first of all it's not difficult in the sense of Romans chapter 7 remember back in Romans chapter 7 I said several times that uh, that this was one of the more difficult passages in the book of Romans and Romans chapter 7 is difficult because it's hard to understand Romans chapter 9 in my opinion at least is not hard to understand. It's just hard to take. And uh, as we come to this today, I want to preface my sermon with two encouragements to you as you hear this sermon today. First of all, uh, I want to encourage you that if you get to the end of this sermon today, you get to the end of this chapter and your blood gets a little roiled, your blood pressure's a little up as you leave today, come back next week, please, because... (laughs) Uh, this is a at least a three-part series that we're going to go through in Romans chapters 9 through 11. And you won't hear the end of this until Romans 11. And I encourage you to hold on till the end of all three of these chapters so that you get the full picture of what Paul is saying here. But also, I want to encourage you to keep this in mind as we go through this chapter particularly. If your view of God is so neatly packaged that you are not afraid of God, in some little sense, if you don't have a sense of fear and awe at the thought of who God is, then you might have the wrong God. Okay? So this passage is going to speak of God in ways that we're not used to speaking of God. And as we do, I want you to keep in mind that, if, that our God is fierce. He is a consuming fire. He is the judge of the universe. He is the sovereign over all things. And if He is those things, then there are points at which, especially for us sinners, at which He will be terrifying. And the way that you find most people 
responding to an experience of God is not with a happy, clappy, glad uh, response, but with fear and trembling and with bowed heads and quaking knees. And so that is what we come to in our picture of God today as we look at uh, Romans chapter 9. And we're going to need to read all of Romans chapter 9 because this is one complete thought that Paul is going to give to us today. And there's no way I can give you that complete thought by breaking it up into a few sermons. So let's read together Romans chapter 9, and then we'll get into the points that I want to make today. So let's uh, follow along with me as I read, starting in verse 1. God's Word says, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who shows mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then, he has mercy on whom he wills, and he hardens whom he wills. You will say to me then, why does does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honored use and another for dishonored use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called? not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed he says in Hosea, 
Those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel. Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sands of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. What shall we say then? That the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained has have attained it, that is, a righteousness that is by faith, but that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So that's a lot, and we're going to try to get to all of it today and and explain it as much as I can. And as we do, I want to look at this passage in three points. First, I want to look at the problem with the promise. Second, I want to look at the purpose of God in election. And third, I want to look at the potter and the clay. So the problem with the promise, the purpose of God in election, and the potter and the clay. So first, let's consider the problem with the promise in verses 1 through 5. So at this point in the book... Paul turns his attention to a various, very serious problem. Now, we might not think, we in this room might not think that this is such a big deal. But for Paul and any Jewish person, this is a huge problem that Paul is going to bring up. And it's a huge problem even for us in the 21st century. And uh, for the uh, next three chapters, Paul is going to work out this problem or the answer to this problem. And it's a problem that any good Jew would raise against what Paul has already said. So remember, Paul has just finished telling us that we can have hope in suffering because God keeps his promises. That God has promised that he will save us, that he has promised that he will work all things together for our good, that he has promised that he has foreknown us, he has predestined us, he's called us, he's justified us, and he will glorify us. And not only that, what we saw last time is that God uh, is, he loves us no matter what our circumstances are in this life. That there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. All of that sounds great and fine and good. and We might monogram that on a pillow and, and we, we can go home. But there's a big problem that comes up, especially if you're a Jewish believer. See, if you're a Jewish believer and you're reading Romans chapter 8, you might think this. You might think, now wait a minute, Paul. I came to faith in Jesus even though the rest of my family rejected him. In fact, much of the persecution you're encouraging us to endure is coming at the hands of my family and my friends in the Jewish community. How can I trust that God will keep his promises 
when it doesn't seem like he has kept his promises to the Jewish people. This is the pain that you feel in the words of Paul in verses 1 through 3. Notice he says that I am in great pain and anguish for my own kin because they have rejected the promised Messiah. In fact, he even says that he is willing to be accursed, which that word literally means to be condemned to hell. He's willing to go to hell so that his kinsmen won't. And this is a real problem for everyone, whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, which is everybody else that isn't a Jew, including all of us in this room. Because it seems as though God did not keep his promises. Paul says in verses 4 through 5 that the Jews were the descendants of Jacob, the Israelites, he calls them. They were the original adopted sons and daughters of God. They experienced the glory of God in the, their deliverance from Egypt and the cloud of fire and smoke that followed them out or led them out of Egypt in the parting of the Red Sea and the descending of the cloud over Mount Sinai in the tabernacle smoke and the sacrifices that were given there and in the many different blessings and victories that God had given them. They had the law and they had the proper order of worship in the tabernacle and the temple. And most importantly, in the theme that runs throughout this chapter and the rest of chapters 10 and 11, most importantly, they had the promises of God. God had promised them that he would bring the whole world to worship him through them. He had promised them that he would restore them after their exile. He promised them that he would give them a new heart and that he would give them a new covenant. And now all of that, at the time of Paul's writing, all of that is happening. It's actively happening in Jesus' death and resurrection and His ascension and in the spreading of the gospel through the world, the Gentiles were coming to faith in Christ. They were coming into the covenant. And Jesus had risen again, which meant that the curse of Adam was turned back on itself and God had defeated death and hell. And yet, with all of that happening, the Jews, in large measure, rejected Jesus. So... Has God failed? Did God fail to keep his promises to Israel? So to answer that question, Paul begins to work out the answer that takes us, like I said, through the rest of chapters 9 through 11. And the first part of that answer we find in what is going to be my second point, which is God's purpose of election. So in verses 6 through 18, Paul begins to answer this question of whether God has failed by just directly answering it to start with. And he answers it with a theme that runs through all of the Old Testament. He starts by answering this hard question with the response in verse 6, For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And he explains further in verse 8, It is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise who are counted as offspring. In other words, there have always been descendants of Abraham 
who were by blood and genetics Jewish people who had been circumcised on the eighth day, who followed every dot and tittle of the law, but who God rejected as true Israelites. And to show this, Paul gives us two very familiar examples that you'll all know and recognize from the Old Testament. The first example is found in verses 8 and 9. He reminds us, or he brings to mind, the story of Ishmael and Isaac. Now, you all remember the story of Ishmael and Isaac. God had promised Abraham and Sarah that they would have a son of promise. But there were two problems. Sarah was barren and Abraham was old. And so, after waiting ten years for God to fulfill His promise, Sarah decides to take matters into her own hands. And she says, you know, I've got this young Egyptian servant named Hagar. Why don't you go and sleep with her and I'll adopt her child as my own and you can have a son off of her. So Abraham goes and does that and he has Ish, or, uh, Hagar has Ishmael from Abraham. Abraham begs God to accept Ishmael, to bless Ishmael. But God tells Abraham that he will not be the son of promise. And then, 25 years after the original promise that God had made, God enables Sarah, even after she has hit menopause, to have a child named Isaac. So, when we read that, we, uh, certainly according to human wisdom, we might look at this situation and say, well, you know, there's no good reason for God to reject Ishmael. For one, he was from Abraham. So technically, he is able to fulfill the promise. And by all accounts, if you were to meet Ishmael, you might be like the Israelites were when they saw, saw the king, the potential king Saul, and say, you know, he's, he looks the part. He's a strapping young man. He has great potential. He's, he, he ought to be a good leader. He, certainly he can be a child of promise. But we might be tempted to think, well, you know, of course God would reject Ishmael because he was born of sin. He was born of adultery. So that makes sense. So to that thought, Paul turns to another example of God's election. In verses 10 through 13, he gives the example of Esau and Jacob. So remember again, Esau and Jacob were twins who were born to the wife of Isaac, her name was Rebekah. So we can't say that God rejected Esau and chose Jacob because of something their parents did, because they didn't do anything wrong and the, they were twins. So they came out at the same time. There was no physical reason to reject Esau and to choose Jacob. Second, just in case we might be tempted to think that God chose Jacob over Esau because of something he saw in Jacob, Paul adds in verse 11, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. So understand what Paul is saying here. God did not choose Jacob and reject Esau because he saw potential in Jacob. He didn't choose Jacob because he saw his future. He, God chose Jacob for his own purposes. 
and not according to works. So to that fact, we may ask the same, pe- the same question that Paul raises in verse 14. In choosing one person and rejecting another before they're born or done anything to prove themselves, does that make God unjust or unfair? So Paul answers that, first of all, by just saying, by no means. Now, I think to understand what Paul is about to explain, we have a little bit of a handicap. Every human has a little bit of a spiritual handicap, if you will, in approaching this subject that Paul is about to raise. Because I think a lot of people, most people think, at least in their practice, they think that humans' default destination is heaven. That we all start out on the road to heaven and that ultimately it is our trip-ups and our mess-ups that lead us to hell. That if it weren't for our little trip-ups and mess-ups, then our default destination would be heaven. And not only that, but that people are basically good and it's their environment that makes them into evil people. But we've already seen in the book of Romans that that's not the case at all. Our default destination isn't heaven. Romans chapter 3, verse 23, remember, says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Our default destination is hell. We are under the curse of Adam, according to Romans chapter 5, verse 12. And we are doomed to the same judgment that Adam received. We don't deserve heaven because we're somehow basically good. No, Paul says in Romans chapter 6, verse 23, the wages of sin is death. So if anyone does receive the promise of God, if anyone does receive heaven, it it is strictly based on God's mercy alone. That is the only reason anyone ever goes to heaven. Ephesians chapter 2 verses 8 and 9 says that we are saved by grace through faith, which Paul says is a gift from God, not by works, lest any man should boast. So understand that there is no one, absolutely no one, you will not hear these words uttered in heaven. There is no one who will stand before God in heaven and say, well, I know why I'm here. I'm here because I helped that little lady across the street when I was 16. I'm here because I gave all that money to the church. I'm here because I'm special and I deserve this. I'm here because I trusted God when no one else would. No. The only thing that you will hear in heaven is if it were not for the grace of God, I would not be here. If it were not for God's mercy and grace, I have no claim to this place. And I deserve the judgment that all the rest of humanity is receiving. So to illustrate this fact, Paul gives both a positive and a negative example from the same story in the book of Exodus. In verse 15, he quotes Exodus chapter 33, where Moses asked to see God's face. Y'all remember that famous story of God passing by Moses 
And God takes Moses and he puts him in the cleft of the rock and he passes by to allow Moses to see the backside of his glory. And as he is passing by, God says the words that we have here. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. Now, what God means here is that when God reveals himself to a person, it is an act of his mercy alone. How many of y'all have seen the backside of God's glory? Anybody? No, you haven't. Why haven't you? Because God has mercy on whom he will have mercy and he has compassion on whom he will have compassion. He didn't owe Moses an audience. He didn't owe Moses anything. And God wasn't forced to show Moses his glory. And he isn't forced to save you either. Every saving action God takes towards us is an act of mercy, not obligation. So on the flip side of that truth, Paul reminds us of Pharaoh. Remember the Pharaoh of Egypt against whom Moses went and proclaimed uh, all, the, all the plagues. Moses goes to, to Pharaoh and he demands that he would let his people go. And nine different times, Pharaoh rejects Moses' plea and he will not let them go. But then on the tenth plague, the death angel comes and he gives in. But even then... He changes his mind and he pursues Israel, the Israelites to the Red Sea. So Paul reminds us with this story of something that God told Moses at the very beginning. In Exodus chapter 3 and 4, when God is calling Moses to go and to deliver his people from Egypt, he tells Moses before Moses ever goes and says the first word to Pharaoh, he says, Pharaoh's not going to let you go. And I am going to harden his heart so that my glory might be known in Egypt. So Moses says that very, I mean, Paul says that very thing here. He reminds us of the fact that God hardened Pharaoh's heart so that he would not relent, even to the point of drowning in the Red Sea while the Israelites crossed on dry ground. So to this, we might have a final objection, which brings me to my last point, the potter and the clay. So in verses 19 through 29, Paul imagines another question that we might ask. So, okay, Paul, you're saying all this about God's election and his purpose. But if God's God's mercy is not up to human will, how can he find fault in those who reject him? Now, at face value, Paul's answer doesn't really seem all that helpful, but we can't miss the details because the the answer is in the details of what he says. And he answers this question by giving the analogy of a potter and a clay, a, a lump of clay. In verse 21, he asks, does a potter not have the right to make from the same lump of clay one vessel that is meant for honorable use and another vessel that is meant for dishonorable use. So imagine that we have a potter and that potter takes a single lump of clay and he cuts it in half. And he takes one half of that lump of clay and out of it he forms a beautiful cup 
that we in this church then take and use in communion. And then he takes the other half of that clay and he forms a wash pan that we use to mop the floors with. Now, does the wash pan, according to Paul's question, does the wash pan have any right to ask, why have you made me this way? Or does the cup? In a similar way, Paul says in verse 22 that God endures with patience those who were prepared for destruction so that he might show off his glory through those whom he shows, to whom he shows mercy. So here's where we need to catch the nuance of what Paul is saying. He doesn't say that God makes people for destruction, as if God delights in making people just so he can send them to hell. He says that he endures with much patience those who are prepared for destruction. The Greek word there for endure is pharaoh, which means to carry, carry or bear with. So God doesn't have to direct people in sin. He only has to leave them in it. God didn't have to make Pharaoh stubborn. Pharaoh was already stubborn. He simply used Pharaoh's stubbornness and Pharaoh's sinfulness to further his own purposes in delivering the nation of Israel and bringing his glory out of that situation. However, with those who receive God's mercy, the wording is different. There he says that we were prepared beforehand for his glory. Now the word prepared beforehand is exactly the same idea as a potter forming a piece of clay. And it means to fit or to fashion in advance. Now I don't want you to miss the beauty and the conviction that is in this passage. So to close, let's read again verses 30 through 32. Verse 30 says, uh, got to get in the right chapter here. Verse 30 says, What shall we say then? That the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it, that is, a righteousness that is by faith, but that Israel, who pursued the law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching the law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. So first, I want you to understand that your salvation is not based on your ancestry or your obedience to a moral code. Paul says that the Jews pursued righteousness through the law and they have stumbled over the stumbling block of Jesus because they did not seek righteousness through faith in Him. So friend, you need to understand that your mama and your daddy can't save you. Your family may trace its lineage all the way back to the founding of this church, but your lineage cannot save you. You may have served in this church for 50 years, given faithfully, been here every Sunday, but your obedience cannot save you. Only the mercy of God can save you. 
Only faith in Jesus Christ and His death and resurrection will save you. You cannot bring to God your heritage and say, See, I deserve to be here because my mama and daddy were deacons and servants in the church. You cannot bring your uh, lineage and assume that because your mama was such a great faithful prayer that you should somehow deserve to be in God's heaven. The only reason that you will stand in the midst of the glory of God in heaven is because of God's grace and through faith in what He has done for you. Nothing else will save you. Won't you turn to faith in Him today and trust that He has saved you because He is gracious to you even though you have lived in rebellion against Him? Second, I want you to understand just how beautiful God's mercy is. Most of us in this room, and probably all of us in this room, are Gentiles. We're not Jews. We didn't come up in the Jewish heritage. We can't trace our lineage back to Abraham. So that means, if you think about it, if we were to trace our lineage back some 8,000 years to the time of Abraham, what would our ancestors be doing? They'd be busy worshiping some pagan god. They'd be busy carrying out false worship, possibly even sacrificing their own children to the gods of Molech and others. They'd be without the law of God. So they wouldn't be living according to any sense of morality, any sense of uh, obligation to God or to their fellow man. And they wouldn't know the glory of God. But now, churches around this world are full of Gentile believers from every tribe and nation. And they're full of Gentile believers that at one time were set against God. At one time, those nations were enemies of the nation of Israel. At one time, those nations would not let Christian missionaries in. At one time, they had in their constitution that they could not even have a religion without state approval. But God in His mercy and His sovereign purposes has brought about the salvation of the Gentiles around this world even though the nation of Israel in large measure has rejected Him. You also were once a part of that mass of humanity that is fit for destruction. But the grace of God at some point in your life shown into your heart through the gospel of Jesus Christ and you trusted in Him for salvation. So your salvation is not based on what you've done or anything good that God saw in you. It's based purely on the mercy of God to save you. And may we leave this place resting solely in the grace of God in Jesus Christ. Not based on things that we've done or things that we can do or things that we think we should do, but resting in His mercy and His grace as we go from this place. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for the mercy of Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank You for Your mercy that while we were 
outside of the covenant of Israel. We were outside of your grace and mercy in Israel. You, at the very right time, while we were yet sinners, you sent your son to die for us. And through your spirit, you have brought us into your family and you have made us rightful heirs of the kingdom of God. And so, Lord, I pray that as we leave this place, we wouldn't seek to appease you with uh, good works as though they somehow will earn your favor, but that we would do those good works out of gratitude for the mercy and grace that you have already shown us. And Father, may we tell others of the hope that they have in Jesus, that their hope is not based on uh, good works or their lineage, but their hope is based on who you are and your mercy. Father, bless us now as we continue to worship. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.